Well, good morning, everyone. Hope you're doing well today. If I haven't had the chance to meet you. My name is John. I get to serve as the lead pastor here in Elmwood. I was going to correct Matt when he was talking about using the bounce house because I was going to say, you know that there's a height requirement. And then I thought, nah, I don't got to say anything to Matt about that. <laughs> Love you, Matt. He just left it right out there for us. We can't. <laughs> That's how we show affection to Matt as we give him grief about his, his height. <laughs> well, we are looking at Psalm 71 today. And if you've been with us during the month of August, you know that we have been taking the same psalm that we use for our pastoral prayer, and we've also been preaching and teaching through that same psalm, so we get to hear that, uh, that word uh, prayed together and as well as uh, taught here, and so we're going to turn to Psalm 71. But as we do, I'd like to ask you to join me for a word of prayer. Lord, we ask this morning as we look into this passage, that as we peer into it and see what you have in here for us, that you would indeed meet us. Lord, you know exactly where every single person is coming from this week, not just geographically, but you know every pain, every difficulty, every joy, every frustration, every lingering doubt or fear. Lord, you know all of that. And so we pray Oh God, that right now in this moment you would come be near us through the presence of your Holy Spirit, that he would illumine this passage for us, that he would open our eyes to see what is here and ultimately to see our risen Savior, Jesus. So help us, we pray this morning. And all God's people said, amen. Well, one of the things that I love about Elmwood is that we are an intergenerational church. I love that I can look out on any given Sunday and see babies, and see children, and see students, and see young people in high school or college, to see young parents, to see those who are uh, middle-aged, those who are empty nesters, and those who have been at this life thing for a very, very, very long time. It's one of the gifts of Elmwood, is that we are an intergenerational church, and if you didn't know this, our congregation spans uh, just under 100 years. So we have babies that are less than a year old, and we've got some that are in their 90s. And it's a beautiful gift to be able to be in this church together. That generational diversity is one of the things that I love about Elmwood, but it's not just me. I know that this is also true of y'all as well, because when I have taken time to meet with those who are newer to Elmwood, and I get together with them, and this includes people who are both younger and older, and I ask them, hey, what have you most appreciated about Elmwood? What sort of caught your eye as you came to Elmwood for the first time? Or what, have you most, uh, what, what sort of stands out to you? Uh, more often than not, the response I get is, we walked into a room and there were both old people and young people together. And so what that helps me to see is that young people don't want to be in a church filled with just other young people. And old people don't want to be in a church just filled with other old people. There's such a beautiful diversity that we get to experience here because of the age demographics that we have. Now, there's lots of uh, differences between generations, right? We know that. Lots of differences of values, differences in the way that we approach things like finances, the way we approach things like work and vocation, the way we approach relationships. Uh, those of us who are younger are digital natives, meaning we don't know a time in our life when the internet was not in our pocket always. So there's lots of differences between the generations, but one thing that all generations have in common is a desire to leave a lasting legacy. Every single person wants to die believing my life mattered. 
My life made a difference, and not just made a difference, but the world is a better place because I was here. Everyone wants to die believing my children or my grandchildren or, Lord willing, my great-grandchildren would look at my life and say, that is a life that I would want to pattern my life after. That it wouldn't be something you'd look at your grandparents and say, oh man, I can't believe that they were that way. But you would say, oh, I wish that my life could turn out to be something like theirs. Not in every way, but you would want them to look at you and see your life and say, that was a life that was well lived. Now, I don't take, uh, just sort of by a general life policy, I don't take advice from t-shirts and uh, you shouldn't either, okay? Most of the time, the stuff you can see in a t-shirt is stuff you just need to forget, put out of your mind. But every once in a while, you run into something that's a real gem. And I saw a t-shirt once that really summarized this well. It said, live so that people don't have to lie at your funeral. <laughs> right? <laughs> live in such a way that when I die, my children don't have to stay up all night, the night before, trying to drum up something nice to say about me. Okay? And the reason we chuckle at that is because we get it. Because we've been to funerals like that, for people like that. And none of us want to be in that situation. And so we can heed that advice to live so that people don't have to lie at your funeral. This psalm is a beautiful picture of a life well lived. That's what we see in Psalm 71 is a picture, a portrait of a life well, well lived. A picture of the kind of life that no matter where we are, whether we are older people or younger people, the kind of life that we can all aspire to. And so we're going to look at the psalm this morning, and we're going to uh, draw some lessons from it. So the first lesson we can learn from Psalm 71 as we look at this portrait of a life well lived is this. Oh, that's not at all what I'm supposed to see on my screen. Let's go. Let's go. There we go. A life of confident trust comes from walking with God through all of life's circumstances. A life of confident and unshakable trust in God comes from walking with him through all of life's circumstances. Now this prayer that we see in Psalm 71 is, if you were listening carefully, you would have noticed that this is the prayer of someone who has walked with God for a very long time. And you can hear this in the language. For example, from uh, verse 6 says, From birth I have relied on you. You brought me forth from my mother's womb, which is a beautiful picture of God as a midwife, tenderly ushering that baby into the world. From birth, I have relied on you. Then later, verse 17, since my youth, God, you have taught me. To this day, I declare your marvelous deeds. Verse 9, do not cast me away when I'm old. Do not forsake me when my strength is gone. So you get all this language where you see from birth, I've relied on you. When I was a young person, you instructed me, and now that I am an old person, I'm old and gray, my strength is failing, God, don't forsake me. And so this is the the picture of a person who has walked with God for all of his life, and at the end of it, he doesn't come out with a kind of bitterness, he doesn't come out having seen what he's seen with a kind of cynicism, he doesn't come out with sort of this uh, posture of doubting, but he comes out with a confident trust in who God is because he's walked with God throughout all of life. Now, this kind of trust that we see of the psalmist here, this confident trust is not something that just appears out of thin air the moment that we come into relationship with God, the moment we come into relationship with Jesus. Wouldn't that be nice to just immediately have this infusion of I implicitly trust God with everything in every circumstance? But we all know the reality that's that's not how it works. 
This is learned over time as we experience life together with God. Now, we know the same thing can be true in our human relationships, and that is that you really get to know someone by experiencing life together with them. So if you're here today and you're married, think about your relationship with your spouse, where you met that person and you thought, I'm attracted to this person. I want to get to know this person. And then you start hanging out or you have mutual friends, you start talking late into the night, you start dating, and and as you do, you get to know more about this person and their personality and their character, and you get to know them. And then you get married and you live in the same house and you really get to know that person because your lives are no longer just sort of orbiting in the same general space, but your lives have become one and your space has become one. And the amount of proximity and the amount of time that you spend with each other reveals things to you about that person that you cannot know from a distance. And so you will live with a person And as you get to know them, you'll walk through life circumstances and and you'll begin to see, you know, I had a sense that this person was someone who was loyal. And then when you screw up really bad, when you say something really insensitive or hurtful, whether it's intentional or not, when you do something that you think might end your relationship and that person shows forgiveness and they show faithfulness to you and they are loyal to you, even in the face of the boneheaded thing that you said or did, you now experientially know the loyalty and the faithfulness of that person in a way that you did not know it before. There's an experience of that. The same thing is true. You may say, you know, I know that this is a person of integrity, but then when I watch them in the midst of their vocation have to labor with the decisions to put people over profit, and you get to see the integrity of their actions, and they say, you know, I could make more money if we did it this way, but I'm choosing to do it this way because that values people. And you get to experientially know that person as a person of integrity in a different way than you could if you just sort of knew about them intellectually in your head. And so this is true of marriage relationships. It's true of relationships with just friends you have, uh, with neighbors, with coworkers. It's true of your relationship with your children. As you experience life together, you get to know them in new and fresh ways, depending on the season of life you're in. So this is true of all these human relationships, and it's also true of our relationship with God that we really get to know God by walking with him through all of life's circumstances. Now, we can open up our Bibles and we can read all kinds of things and know intellectually about God. And if you've been around Elmwood for a while, you know that we care about that. That is really important that we would know what the Bible says, that we would see it as God's good gift to us, that we would uh, sit under its authority and that we would listen to what it teaches us about who God is. Absolutely, and I think we would all also say there is a huge difference between knowing about God intellectually and actually walking with God and knowing him experientially in the things of life. And so we can know God in this way, as we see here with the psalmist, and again, we can have an intellectual understanding of God is faithful. And yet when we cultivate a practice of daily confession, where we bring ourselves before God and we do self-reflection and we bring all of the shortcomings and all of the sin and all the idolatry before God and we experience his forgiveness. When we cultivate that practice of confession, that helps us to experientially know that God is not just sort of by attribute a loyal, faithful God, but that he's loyal and faithful to me. And the same thing is true of knowing that God is enough knowing that God is enough for us, that in him we have everything that our hearts truly need. 
And so when we choose to cultivate the practice of Sabbath, when we stop working, when we take a break, even though we could keep working, even though there's more work to be done, there's more profit to be made, we could get ahead, and we choose to take time and Sabbath, what we do is by experiencing that, we train our hearts to actually know that God is enough for us. And we do that by stopping. And so in in these different ways, and in many, many more that we could talk about, we get to experientially know who God is, not just by reading about him in the Bible, although we do that, we get to know who God is and get to come into a awareness of him. We get to cultivate this life of confident trust by walking with God through all of life. And this is the experience that we see of the psalmist. He has cultivated a life of this confident trust. And we see it working its way out in a couple different ways in the psalm. So, for example, verse 9, he says, Do not cast me away when I'm old. Do not forsake me when my strength is gone. For my enemies speak against me. Those who wait to kill me conspire together. They say God has forsaken him, pursue him, and seize him. For no one will rescue him. And so what we see here is that the psalmist is surrounded on all sides by his enemies. They are seeking to take his life. And as we look at Psalm 71 as a whole we see that the psalm is more characterized by praise than petition. The tone of Psalm 71 is not frantic. It's not desperate. He's not wringing his hands wondering if God's going to show up. This is a psalm that's characterized by a slow, confident trust in God. And so we see it even just in the way that the psalm uh, is communicated to us, even in the very language. We see it's more characterized by praise than petition. But in addition to this, we also see uh, so much language of intimacy in this. Verse 3 says, Be my rock of refuge to which I can always go. Give the command to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. Deliver me, my God, from the hand of the wicked. For you have been my hope, sovereign Lord, my confidence since my youth. From birth I have relied on you. I will ever praise you. As for me, I will always have hope. I will praise you more and more. My mouth will tell of your righteous deeds, of your saving acts all day long, though I do not know how to relate them all. Your righteousness, God, reaches to the heavens. You who have done great things, who is like you, God? I will praise you with the harp for your faithfulness, my God. I will sing praise to you with the lyre, Holy One of Israel. And so we see the language in this psalm is very very intimate in the way he refers to him as my God, my rock, my fortress, over and over and over again. And you get to see the clear picture that the psalmist's relationship with God is not dryly intellectual and it's not coldly transactional. It's neither of those things. This is a dynamic relationship that he has with God, a trust, a confidence and trust that he's built up over time by walking with God through all of life and in a way proving God, testing God and God showing up and showing himself to be faithful. And so this is, what we see is that this life of confident trust, it comes by walking with God through all of life. Now, I think it's important for us to see that Psalm 71 does far more than just describe someone else's relationship with God. Now, certainly it does that. We see sort of a window, a picture into David's life. But it does more than just describe someone else's relationship with God. I believe that one of the things that God wants for us is to look at Psalm 71 and for us to say, I want to know God like that. I want to have the same kind of confident trust in the midst of 
being surrounded by my enemies, feeling, feeling all the things that the psalmist was experiencing, I want to know the confident trust, the stability, the hope that can be experienced that the psalmist is experiencing here. I want to know that. And so Psalm 71 is not just a description of someone else's relationship with God. Psalm 71 is an invitation for us to experience it ourselves. It's an invitation that's supposed to draw us in and we're supposed to say, God, I want what Psalm 71 puts out there for me. I want to experience what the writer of Psalm 71 is experiencing. And that is available to us through the power of God's spirit, through the work of Christ, we have access to God and we can cultivate this life of confident trust that comes from walking with him through all of life's circumstances. So that's the first lesson. A life of confident trust comes from walking with God through all of life's circumstances. And the second lesson that we see here is this. Strife and difficulty will follow us to the grave, but God is with us in the midst of it. Strife and difficulty, suffering, hardship, discouragement, doubt, fear, chaos, all of those things will follow us all the way to the moment of death. There is no like magic age where you like hit this certain age and it's like, wow, all those things ended and I just get to like coast until I reach the end. Those of you who are older here, you know that doesn't work that way. It will follow us to the grave, but the good news is that God is with us in the midst of it. Now, one of the keys to unlocking this psalm is to understand who wrote it and why. There are uh, psalms, if you're familiar with the book of psalms, you know that some of them have, uh, some of them have been given a title and have given us the author who wrote it, as well as sometimes even the circumstances that led to uh, the psalm's writing. If you look at Psalm 71, you notice that you have neither of those things. I'm not going to go into all the sort of academic, scholarly reasons for this. If you want to ask me about that later, feel free. I'll nerd out with you for a minute, okay? Um, but I'm not going to make all the rest of y'all bored with that for a couple minutes. Uh, but what scholars agree on, mostly, is that this is a psalm that was written by King David. And it was written during the period of his life around 1 Kings chapter 1. And if you look at 1 Kings chapter 1, what you see is that David is old. He's an old man. His strength is failing He's old and gray, so you, you, you can see some of the connections between where he is in that stage of life and the language of this psalm. So he's in that season of life. He's about to pass off the throne to his son, Solomon. Solomon is the next in line to be king over Israel. And before he has the chance to do that, one of his sons, whose name is Adonijah, decides he's going to steal the throne. So he comes up with this plan and sort of announces himself as king, and, and tries to steal the throne from his father David. He essentially tries to take advantage of David in his old age because David is old. He doesn't have the same strength that he used to have and so he uh, looks by appearance to be sort of an easy target. And so his son Adonijah tries to steal the throne from him and uh, of course it was not a accidental thing. This was like a planned thing where he set himself up to be an enemy of David and tried to steal the kingdom from him. And these are the circumstances that most scholars believe are behind Psalm 71. And I think this really helps us uh, understand and gives more color and definition to what we read in this psalm. But the, the point is that even as David nears death, strife and difficulty are a close companion for him. And this was not a one-off thing in his life. If you're familiar with David's life, you know that his life was filled with strife and difficulty. 
If you're familiar with his life, you'll know that David, when he was a young, young teenage boy, he killed Goliath. And as a result of that, he received the praise and the accolades of all the people. And the king at the time, whose name was Saul, was uh, understandably not very thrilled about this young boy sort of stealing the hearts of the people. And so what he does is he spends the next number of years trying to kill David. And David spends his life on the run. He's in caves. He's running to enemy territory to try and escape from Saul. And he spends the first number of years of his life after he's been anointed by God as the king of Israel, he spends that time fleeing in the desert, running from his enemies. And then after Saul dies in battle, which by the way, Jonathan, who's David's best friend, also dies in that same battle. So he experiences the agonizing loss of his closest friend. And then after Saul dies, the conflict between Saul and David doesn't go away because the descendants of Saul, those who are a part of his household, were still in conflict and were still warring with David and his household. So even after Saul is dead, the conflict with Saul is not dead. We know uh, that the lowest point of David's life, as it's recorded for us in the Bible, is when he committed adultery with Bathsheba and then killed her husband, had him murdered in order to cover it up. One of the judgments that God pronounced on David for that sin was that the first baby that he and Bathsheba would have together, that that first infant would die. And so he and Bathsheba walked through the, the, the disaster, the just grueling experience of losing a child who's an infant. Another one of the judgments that God placed upon him for that sin was that there would always be a kind of conflict between him and other people in his kingdom. And we see that played out. At a different point, a different one of David's sons, whose name is Absalom, he tries to steal the kingdom from David. Then we read about two other guys who rose up and they tried to steal the kingdom from David. And then we read about David as he's nearing the grave, he's nearing the finish line, and another one of his sons tries to steal the kingdom from him. And so this guy's entire life has been filled with difficulty and strife. And friends, this is only the stuff that we know about. I think we all know that there would have been so many other things that he experienced, pains, difficulty, strife, suffering, discouragements that he bore that we don't even know anything about. But even just from looking what we do have in the Bible, we know that his life was filled with difficulty and strife and all the way until the very end. Difficulty and strife followed him to the grave. But what he knows, because he has walked with God through all of life, because he has cultivated this confident trust in God, his trust in God in this moment as he is old is not wavering. His trust in God is firm because he knows that God has not abandoned him. And so we read in verse 14. As for me, I will always have hope. I will praise you more and more. Verse 19, though you have made me see troubles, many and bitter, you will restore my life again. From the depths of the earth, you will bring me up. So we see him with confident trust in God, having walked through all of these difficult circumstances, those difficult circumstances being present with him as he's nearing his death, and he still has that confident trust knowing that God has not abandoned him. And the same thing is true for us. The good news for David that even in the midst of that strife and difficulty, God is still with him. God has not abandoned him. That is the same good news that's true for us as well. Now what I want to do uh, is I want to just spend a few moments here um, as we are in this psalm 
thinking about this man David and his life and the legacy that he left, I want to just take a minute and speak to uh, those who are here who are older. Psalm 71 was written by an old person and it has uniquely good news for old people. Not exclusively, okay, so if you're younger, don't just like tune out. It's got good news for everybody, but there's a unique kind of good news that those who are older in life can glean from Psalm 71. Because those of us who are older in life can, ex- can experientially know, we know something of what David experienced. You see, David is in his later years of life, and his strength is failing. He's not the king he once was. He's not the leader. He's not the warrior. He's not the soldier he once was. His physical presence doesn't command the same thing as it used to. He's getting old. He's getting feeble. His body is starting to slow down and break down. And as that's happening to David, what what he experiences is that he is sort of nearing the end of his journey and everything around him feels like it's out of control. And those in the room, who those are part of our church family who are older in life, you know that this is the experience that you have too. That you get older and as you age, that comes with a kind of loss of control with what's happening around you. And that may be loss of, uh, loss of your memory. It may be loss of bodily functions. Things don't do what they used to do. They start doing things they didn't used to do. So maybe loss of bodily functions. It may be just the, the pace of life in the world around you as you are slowing down and everything around you seems to be increasing in how fast it's moving and you can't keep up with technology and you can't keep up with this, you can't keep up with that and it feels like everything is going so fast and you feel like you're left behind. You feel like you are abandoned. Maybe you're getting older and the, the friends that you've had as lifelong friends have died and you find yourself alone without any of the friends that you grew up with. And there's all these things that you experience as you get older in years that make you feel like life is out of control. And David knew exactly what it was like to experience that. And the good news that was good news for him is the same good news that is good for you as well. And that is this, that difficulty will follow you to the grave, but so will the tender compassion of God. Difficulty and strife, it will follow you all of your days until you step foot into the grave, but so will the tender compassion of God. He's promised that he will not leave you. He's promised that he will not abandon you. He will not forsake you. He will not leave you behind. And so as you increase in age and as you experience some of the loss of control, you can have hope in that God's tender mercy will continue with you all the way until the last day. And friends, for those of you who are older, one of the, let me just speak to you as a young person, okay? One of the greatest gifts that you can give the younger generation is to demonstrate and to model the kind of confident trust that David has here in the psalm. There's a lot of things that you know, the younger generation would like from the older. This is maybe the most important thing, is to have people in our lives who we know care about us, who are willing to, can model this for us and encourage us and, and give us something to aspire to. And I'm so grateful that so many of you in our Elmwood family who are older have done exactly that and you've demonstrated this kind of confident faith and it's a gift to the younger generation. You know, we, um, I hear a lot of times from the older folks at Elmwood, it's so great to have young people around and that's like 
okay, that's, that's cool. Like, that's a thing. I get that. I don't want to take that away from you. And also, like, speaking as a young person, uh, it's so great to have old people here. And all the young people said, amen. <laughs> young people, you didn't think I was going to uh, leave you behind, did you? Young people, however you want to define that, I'll leave that up to you. You can define young however you want. But those who are younger, I want to read to you verse 15. My mouth will tell of your righteous deeds, of your saving acts all day long, though I know not how to relate them all. Verse 18, even when I'm old and gray, do not forsake me, my God, till I declare your power to the next generation, your mighty acts to those who are to come. What you see here is that David, as he is entering this last season of his life, his focus is not turned inwards on himself. This is not a picture of the modern American dream of retirement, which is like, I grit my teeth and work because I have to, and then I can coast until I die. It's not what we see here in this text. Until his last moment, David, what he wants, his, his uh, consuming desire in his last moments is that he would be able to tell about the faithful and loyal and loving acts of God to the next generation. And it may feel like when you come to a psalm like this and you read that it's by an old person uh, who's experienced all this stuff, and, and for those of us who are younger, the temptation is to say, well, this psalm doesn't have anything in here for me. When I turn 70 or 80 or whatever that number year is, then this psalm will become relevant to me, and that's just not true. Because every single one of us no matter how old you are, even right now, you are investing something into the next generation. There is something that you are investing in that you are sowing into the next generation. And the question is, what is that? You know, it's so easy to think that, uh, you know, leaving a legacy and, and, and doing what David's doing here is like, okay, we take all this, this wisdom, this experience we've had, and we just like carry it with us and we save it with us until we're on like our deathbed. And then we just like, blah, and we just like regurgitate it on people. That's not how it works. No, as you live ordinary life with your friends and with your family and with your children, you are sowing something into them. So even right now as a young person, what this passage is calling us to do as younger people is to be the kind of people that when we get older, people will look at us and they will see Psalm 71. And that doesn't happen when we uh, wait until we're later in life to care about these things. The question is, what would stop us from pursuing this kind of life here and now? God wants us to know him deeply and intimately like we see in Psalm 71. God desires that we as young people would be right now cultivating the kind of confident trust in him that will lead people to look at our lives and say that was a life well lived. So this psalm isn't just for those who are older. This psalm is an invitation for those of us who are younger to say, I'm gonna make my life count and that doesn't start when I'm older, it starts now. And so the legacy that I'm leaving is found in the accumulation of the smallest things I do right now in the way I relate to people, in the way I do my work, in the way that I cultivate a relationship with Jesus throughout the week instead of just coming to church on Sunday, in the way that I do everything, I'm building this kind of life, and this is what God wants for us, is to experience this and to pass it on to the next generation. Now, we can learn a lot from David as an example, and we ought to, right? We ought to look to David's life in a psalm and say, wow, that's so inspiring. I want to have a life 
that uh, when I'm David's age, I want to have something that looks like his life. I want people to be able to read at my funeral this psalm and say, this was John. I want that. And that's a good thing. We ought to look to David as an example. And ultimately, this psalm is not about David. Because our hope is not found in David's example. Our hope is found in David's God and what David's God has done for us. So here's why we can have the supreme confidence in him. Because we know that God the Father sent us God the Son. And God, in the person of Jesus Christ, took on human flesh, and he accompanied us in our humanity, and he experienced all of the difficulty, all of the strife that we did. And he suffered and he died for us. He walked a life of complete obedience to God the Father. And he was in perfect communion and relationship with God the Father. He obeyed him and perfectly delighted in him. And so the picture that, that we see of David here is, is just, a, just a glimmer of what we see of the, the faithfulness and the relationship that, uh, that Jesus had with the Father. And ultimately, what we see is that Jesus had the confident trust that David exemplifies here, but in a way that David will never have known in his earthly life. And when it cost Jesus, when Jesus knew that the Father, his plan was to send him to suffer and to die, when Jesus knew that he would experience the forsakenness that David prays against, when Jesus knew that he would experience the grueling agony of the cross, when Jesus knew that he would see troubles many and bitter, he was obedient to the Father. He was obedient to the Father. And one thing that I think is important just to notice here is when David prays this in verse 12, he says, Do not be far from me, my God. Come quickly and God help me. May my accusers perish in shame. May those who want to harm me be covered with scorn and disgrace. Jesus experienced what David did, being surrounded by his enemies, his enemies seeking his death. And in the midst of that, Jesus could have prayed, God, cover them with scorn and disgrace. And yet, what did he pray? Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And so this is why we can have confident trust in who God is. Because we know that he is worthy of our confident trust because he has given us in the person of Jesus the clearest demonstration of his faithful, loyal love for us. And so we know through Jesus that he has made himself available to us and that he wants to know us and we get to experience relationship with him. We know from Jesus that God has not stayed distant from us in the difficulty and the strife we experience. But all of the heartache, all of the grief, all of the loss, all of the, the, everything awful about life in a broken world, Jesus knows what it's like to sit under the full weight of that. He understands. And he's promised that he will be with us. And if God has given us his son, is there anything else that he would not also provide for us that we need? And of course we know the answer is absolutely not. God has given us a son. And so we know that he's trustworthy. One of the ways that we get to remember and, and demonstrate and practice uh, our belief in, in how much God is in his faithfulness towards us. One of the ways we get to express our confident trust in him is by coming to the communion table. 
And the communion table is not only an expression of God's faithfulness and his loyalty to us, that he was willing to send his son to suffer and to die for us, but it's also an opportunity for us to demonstrate our loyalty to him. It's a demonstration of our ability for us to stand and physically walk out of our seats and come forward and receive Christ afresh, to receive him in fresh ways and to, in a way, give ourselves to him. And this is, this is a, a part of our Sunday morning liturgy for a reason because we get to do this over and over and over and over again and every time we do it, we get to experience Christ in new and fresh ways. And so this is a beautiful gift that we get to participate in, coming to experience communion with Jesus. And so I invite you, um, as we come to the communion table, would you bow with me for a moment of silent confession and reflection?